Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Anti-Capitalist Resistance Radio AC Radio podcast. Today, myself, Rowan Fortune, they, them, and Simon Hanna, he, him, will be interviewing Ian Parker, he, him, about his book Stalinist Realism and Open Communism. Ian is a Manchester member of ACR. To begin, I want to ask about the book's broadest categories, those that frame the entire piece, namely Stalinist realism, the connected notion of capitalist realism, and open communism. Maybe I should start by saying a little bit about capitalist realism, because that's a starting concept that was very important in a really nice book that was published back in 2009, written by Mark Fisher. And by capitalist realism, Mark Fisher meant the way in which the world now seems to be a completely totalised entity in which there's no alternative, in which there's no possibility of thinking about an alternative to capitalism. As Marx somewhere said, it seems easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. And what he explores in the book is the way that this idea that there's no alternative and that capitalism is the only possible reality is filled with all kinds of fantasies that immobilize us and prevent us from thinking. So What I wanted to do was to extend that idea and to look at the way in which there's a kind of bizarre mirror image of capitalist realism at play in sections of the left. And those sections of the left seem to have a very fixed idea of what the alternative is to capitalism. But that very fixed idea that there's only one alternative, is what I call Stalinist realism. So Stalinist realism has its origins back in Stalinism, of course, in the Soviet Union, where Marxism was turned from being an open way of thinking about multiple alternatives and ways of liberation for people around class, around ethnic identity, around sexuality, and gender, it was turned from being an open flowering of alternatives into something very fixed and static. So Marxism was turned into being a kind of worldview or a kind of religion or a kind of faith. And indeed, Stalinism was the faith of the bureaucracy. And many radicals around the world looked to the Soviet Union and then to China later on after the revolution there. They looked to those states, those Stalinist states, as being the guiding ideological forces. And they shut their eyes to other possibilities. And it was always the task of revolutionary Marxists to argue that this was not the be-all and end-all of what socialism is or could be. And it was something much more radical and much more open. And it's that more radical, open, diverse and pluralistic alternative to capitalism that I explore in the second part of the book, which is on open communism. So open communism is a genuine, diverse, pluralistic alternative to Stalinist realism. What's useful about the link between capitalist realism and Stalinist realism there is that it's not just a analytical comparison between the two concepts. They're not just 
concepts that have similarities, but that Stalinist realism, at least my sense from the book, is in many ways a response to capitalist realism and is in many ways shaped by capitalist realism and the demands that capitalist class society makes upon Marxist movements, which is to say that you're not providing moralistic critique of what Stalinism and Stalinist realism is here, but are looking at why Marxists went in this particular direction, why they ended up in in this way that betrays many of the ideas of Marx, I think, as you outlined in the book, and that drifts away from this pluralistic model that had freedom at its core in you know, the language of, say, Ray Adonyaskaya and, and many other Marxists who wrote so stridently against this form of, of Marx. I, I would wonder if you'd be willing to reflect on on the origins of Stalinist realism and its roots in the failures and crises of Marxists, both in the past and, of course, today, as, as we're seeing many of these elements return or maybe persist. I mean, Stalinism was always a phenomenon that was linked with failure. It was linked with the failure, the eventual failure of the revolution in Russia, which in its early years was a radical experiment in freedom. From 1917 to the early 1920s, there were a lot of radical movements around the family, around culture, around identity that were really important and that were showing us that there were possible ways of being that were far beyond the kind of commodified world of capitalism. So Stalinism emerged as uh, the guiding ideology of the bureaucracy in the Soviet Union through the late 1920s and then, of course, reached its worst aspects in the Stalinist show trials of the 1930s. And when it turned Marxism into being that kind of religious system, it had very fixed ideas about what Marxism could say about the world. So Marxism was turned from being a guide to action, that is, an alternative to capitalism, into being into a fixed uh, system or a worldview. Now, this Stalinism, in a very weird way, was functional to the existence of capitalism in the rest of the world during that time, that it kind of played a role in persuading people that this terrible despotic system, this bureaucracy, was the only alternative to capitalism. And so while some people were willing to join the communist parties and to cover up the crimes of Stalinism and to keep quiet about the oppression that was happening inside the Soviet Union and then in China, while some people were willing to do that, a lot of people were frightened off the idea of socialism or communism because of the existence of these bureaucracies. So we always had a very difficult task, we revolutionary Marxists, of keeping open the early spirit of radical change that was there from 1917 to the early 1920s and supporting those who were arguing that that the revolution had betrayed its radical hopes and that we needed to look to new movements, anti-capitalist movements, that would not only overthrow capitalism in the capitalist countries, those countries that were explicitly capitalist, but would also overthrow the bureaucracy and bring about a political revolution and genuine freedom in the Soviet Union and, of course, in China. 
Turning to today, we see this very strange online appearance of what you could call Gen Z or even some sort of the younger cohort of millennials turning to Stalinist-like ideas. Some of them will outright call themselves Marxist-Leninists. Some of them will just appropriate those kinds of ideas or even adhere to something even stranger and more obscure. One of the other popular leaders under Stalinism, etc., etc., and and claim to represent a coherent ideology of of that ill. And I think what that highlights is something that comes through in your book, which is that there's the particular historical phenomenon of Stalinism. And then there's a more general tendency that it represents, a tendency that might be apparent before Stalinism arose in some respects, a, a tendency to capitulate to capitalism in some new ways, to capitulate certainly to the prejudices of capitalism within the socialist movement, to adopt ideas that are counter to the spirit of Marxism as it was originally conceived. And this is a kind of thing in itself in, in the same way that, for example, we can talk about particular ultra-movements almost on the opposite side of things and the general tendency of altruism the tendency to make marxism something incredibly abstract i guess in 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 a way that removes it from any kind of concern with the real world of politics with actually assessing forces on the ground and i think that's a really interesting frame to have this notion of of stalinism as a general tendency within marxism because i think it puts the onus even onto those of us within genuinely revolutionary organizations to be wary of that tendency even potentially within ourselves in terms of navigating the theoretical and practical problems of today. I was wondering before I turn to Simon to perhaps ask a a follow-up question on on something if you'd like to sort of address that and also this particular problem of young people being drawn into Stalinism and the kinds of failures that that might represent. Yes sure I, I think you're absolutely right that what we have now in Stalinist realism is a cultural political phenomenon in which the prejudices and reactionary ideas that were revived by Stalin in the Soviet Union, ideas about the family, for example, as the foundation of society, ideas about fixed divisions between men and women, the locking of gender identity onto kinds of bodies that can be described by scientists, you know, the reality underneath that kind of thing. And frankly, racist ideas about different ethnic uh, groups that were used by Stalin and are now reproduced today by some on the left in very fixed ideas about what progressive nations are and what reactionary nations are. If you listen, for example, to some of those who are influenced by Stalinist realism, who are willing to cover up the crimes of Putin in the Ukraine, you find some very bizarre stereotypes about Ukrainians as being intrinsically fascist or right-wing, which really uh, covers over the contradictions in every society. Every society has contradictions with reactionaries and progressives in it. And so in place of a genuine class analysis, of the ways in which different nations operate. We have a division between different nations in which some groups are seen as good, the Russians, the Chinese, for example, progressive, and then others are seen as bad, the the bad Tibetans who are tools of the West, or the Uyghurs who are complaining and who aren't really oppressed. 
as two examples, recent examples. And Stalinist realism is a phenomenon that locks people into a fixed way of seeing the world and wanting a kind of tidy authoritarian alternative to capitalism. I think there's something to re- reassuring to these people about Stalinist realism because it has fixed, definite compass points and they can stop thinking for themselves. Instead, they take their leadership from people who will tell them what the world is really like and they can make a very tidy and neat opposition between the good states who are carrying on the good old struggle against capitalism, <laughs> Russia and China, and then lining up with that, very bizarrely, states like Venezuela or Nicaragua or Zimbabwe or Syria, a very, very bizarre constellation of authoritarian states that uh, the Stalinist realism people will be quiet about. Very interesting to talk about it the way you do in your book as well about the role of fantasy in the ordering of Stalinist politics and particularly the psychology of people and the way that they exist in this kind of nexus of very intense contradictions which they either ignore or they try and sublate somehow so I mean obviously I'm very kind of taken by the you know the points you made about Putin's Russia and how a lot of the people who would identify as some kind of Stalinist or have some kind of attraction to that kind of politics are actively supporting Russia so you know they're going around with kind of Z's written on bits of paper kind of like really not just being oh you know the russian invasion's bad but also the you know the ukrainian regime is bad but just saying the ukrainian regime is basically fascist and russia was carrying out a denazification campaign kind of just straight believe the initial propaganda that putin's regime put out kind of uncritically but of course they would never do that about the west i mean when george w bush or tony blair said the invasion of iraq was about weapons of mass destruction or you know some you know like something like this obviously lots of those people were very critical of that and rightly called it out for what it was which was a blatant lie by elements of Western imperialism to justify the invasion of a sovereign state. But then when Putin does it around Ukraine, they basically completely agree with it. They really do believe that there are, or at least they say they believe, and I guess this is where the question of fantasy comes in or not. I mean, what do they really believe? Like, it's not always clear, but I think some of them do actually believe that, you know, Ukraine is some kind of uniquely fascistic state. But of course, then they don't draw the conclusions and say, well, actually, Putin's Russia is also a horrible authority state where Putin has basically made himself the supreme ruler and shuts down opposition parties. It is not safe to be LGBTQI in Russia. You know, the trade unions are completely either neutered or sort of run by corrupt gangsters and, you know, the left, when they did try and oppose the invasion of Ukraine, were arrested en masse and a lot of them were effectively deported or exiled from the country. But of course, sort of that is all ignored or that's all just claimed to be kind of bourgeois propaganda. So yeah, I'd be interested to hear more about what you think about about those kind of contradictions and how they kind of affect the psychology of people that believe them and whether they actually kind of do believe them or not. And I think there's an element of desperation in this clinging to an alternative that is actually has a concrete form. One of the problems that we have and one of the tasks that we have on the revolutionary left is to build an alternative to this society, this capitalist society, to build it from the base, to do that in our everyday relationships, in the organisations that we're part of, and to do that in a way that links the different struggles that we're involved in, whether they're trade union struggles or struggles around women's 
women's rights and trans rights and solidarity with different struggles that are happening around the world, bringing an internationalist aspect to our politics. There's a difficulty in that, which is that we can't point to somewhere in the world at the moment where everything is perfect. But what the Stalinist realism motif does, what it does as an ideological phenomenon, is to point to somewhere and give people kind of hope that there is something actually really existing at the moment that you can fight for. And what we need to do is to turn our attention away from these kind of fantastical images of these other places, which are really, as you say, brutal authoritarian regimes. We need to turn our attention to two things. First of all, to our own resources, to our own capacities to build alternatives in a more liberating way and to be in solidarity with our comrades in those other countries who are fighting desperately for an alternative and are being silenced. They're being silenced by those regimes and they're being silenced by those on the left here who rubbish what they're saying and cover over the crimes of those regimes. So we really have a a very difficult uh, struggle here to to fight for. That reminds me of the final section of of your book on transitions, um, this notion of prefiguration and means, insofar as you talk about our task, not really to say that there are no alternatives, as indeed both capitalist realism and Stalinist realism does in different ways, but to locate that alternative in a much more pluralistic and much more messier field within within the world. And when you talk about prefiguration, that made me think a lot about the sometimes quite confused relationship that Marxism has had in the past and, and today with utopian thinking. I'm quite a fan of the philosopher who unfortunately did adhere a bit close to the status of various points, this blosh, but I think for historical reasons in a very complicated way. But nonetheless, he proposed a theory of utopian imagination that I think helps clarify a point that I think has been very misunderstood from Engels in Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, which is the actual nature of the critique of utopian socialists. Because I think one of the myths that Stalinist realism plays into is that the Marxist critique of utopianism is a critique of any kind of hope for the future. And this helps them relocate those hopes to these geopolitical power blocks, like, for example, China and Russia. And in actual fact, that wasn't Engels' point, and it wasn't Marx's and Engels' point when they made it together in the Communist Manifesto whatsoever. They were specifically dealing with the issue of blueprints, which is in fact quite close to what the bureaucracies in countries like China and Russia in fact do, and not with the idea of prefiguration, not with the idea that the movement of the working class as it seeks its own liberation and the movement of oppressed people as they seek their liberation would have values that prefigure a new world. And I was wondering what you think about this notion of prefiguration and this need to, in some ways, embody utopian striving within any kind of movement without potentially falling into the trap of sort of whimsical blueprints or letting go of any kind of analysis of the situation in terms of the balance of forces, which has always been, I think, the danger with utopian thinking that hasn't ha- that doesn't have any anchoring in the world. 
I think we can see this in the history of the Marxist movement. In those philosophers that you were mentioning, who were concerned with utopias as positive, energising phenomena that people could, could work with and try and enact in their own lives. And we can see it also in the more traditional figures. If we go to Lenin, for example, and I know it's unfashionable to talk about Lenin nowadays, but really Lenin is an alternative to Stalinism. Stalinism is sometimes made to seem by the ideologues of capitalism as if Stalin is a kind of continuation of Leninism, but there's a sharp break between Lenin and Stalin. Lenin is someone that we can look back to and learn from. Now, before the Russian Revolution, there was a tendency in the Marxist movement to see progress as being linear, unfolding, as capitalism got stronger, the working class would get bigger and stronger, and then there would be a transition to socialism. And what Lenin did was to take seriously the utopian aspect of Marxism, the idea that you needed a dialectical understanding of capitalism in which contradiction was absolutely key, and that there would be leaps and breaks in capitalism, which would open up the possibility of something completely different. And that's indeed what happened in the Russian Revolution. They were able to break not only the Russian state, but also break from the idea that there was some kind of linear historical sequence that ran from slavery to capitalism and then socialism. And then that meant that you must wait until the development of capitalism in Russia before you could build an alternative. They broke from that inside Russia to bring about the Russian Revolution and became a place in which there was amazing experimentation and freedom around different aspects of, of life. It became an inspiration to people outside Russia. And that utopian aspect, I think, is something that we really need to, to hold on to and to find ways of finding a kind of energy and inspiration, which comes from aspects of class struggle in the development of cooperatives, in strike movements, in uh, kind of innovative, innovative ways of struggling against capitalism, and also from the many different movements that run alongside and intersect with class struggle around sexuality and gender, anti-racism nowadays, decolonization, and so on and so forth. And if we look back to Lenin, we can see this influence of a utopian aspect, uh, focus on contradiction and leaps and unexpected, unpredictable alternatives emerging, not only inside Russia, but we can also see those unpredictable, fantastic, utopian alternatives operating, and Lenin pointed to them, in the anti-colonial movements. Because Lenin was very clear in the early years of the Russian Revolution that it's one of the tasks of socialists to support the national liberation movements against the dominant imperialist economies. That is, we need to understand and learn from these different movements in order to re-energize 
what we think is possible for ourselves, that if we learn from the, the multiple different uh, political movements, instead of reducing everything to a kind of very fixed and mechanistic idea of what class struggle is about. Now, among the Stalinist realists, we see this reduction, a hostility to intersectional ideas, a hostility to feminism, a hostility to what they call identity politics, sometimes even a hostility to gender identity, a hostility to alternative forms of gender and sexual politics. And there is a kind of fetishization or an obsession among the Stalinist realists, not only with states that are powerful as alternatives, but with a fantasy idea of what the working class is as something unified and homogeneous. And we can see that playing its way out in the fantasies of the Red Wall in the north of England, for example, where there's a kind of fantasy idea of the working class as being one thing, as being white, as being local, and really overlooks the diversity of the working class. Working class struggle is a struggle that includes struggles around gender and sexuality and race. It always has, even more now, where internationalist struggle is among us all, in all of our communities, because there are migrant communities among us that are part of the working class. I wanted to turn next to the second half, the question of open communism. I think this is a key thing for socialists now and certainly something that anti-capitalist resistance has been talking about. How do we how do we salvage? How do we bring back into popular collective use and understanding a an idea of communism or revolutionary socialism which manages to escape the dire legacy of the 20th century because I think this is this is in a sense an objective problem because in the eyes of billions of people communism was tried and then failed so you know it's called an experiment sort of you know the the soviet experiment for instance and obviously we want to save or kind of re rebuild a legacy of healthy revolutionary struggle which is emancipatory which is liberatory which is fighting against alienation not to build police states run by bureaucracies but to build societies where there is genuine democratic collective control and also we begin to heal the metabolic rift between humanity and and nature so the second part of your book is about this concept of open communism i was wondering if you could give us more of more of an explanation of what that means for you well one of the things it means for me is the way that we behave in our organizations and find an alternative to the really debilitating and constraining model of revolutionary organization that we carried through from Stalinism for many years. Sometimes some of us used to refer to democratic centralism as a healthy possible way of running an organization. But I think what we've learned is that in most Marxist organizations, that democratic centralism is more centralist 
than it is democratic. And that democratic centralist way of organising demanded that people knuckle down to the decisions that were taken at party conferences and they only put the line of the organisation that was agreed at the conference to people who were outside the organisation. So this has psychological consequences because it means that members of the organisation who disagree with the line and who have argued against it inside are now having to keep quiet about those disagreements and having to say something to people outside to try and recruit them and involve them in campaigns to speak in a way that they don't really believe. Now, I think this is psychologically harmful as well as being politically harmful. So a first starting point of open communism is to be open about the disagreements that we have with our comrades so that we can draw people into an open debate about the way forward. Now, of course, once we joined an organisation, there's a kind of broad understanding and a broad agreement which has drawn us into that organisation. Anti-capitalist resistance has a very clear position, for example, around support for the Ukrainian resistance, has a very clear position in for trans rights, just to name two very different things. But it has these clear positions that we would expect our comrades also to be arguing for. Uh, but within the broad frame, within that revolutionary frame, we have many disagreements and debates. And I don't think there's anything wrong in our members speaking to someone outside and saying, well, you know, ACR says this, but I'm not happy about this. I have a slightly different view of it. Now, this plays its way out organisationally in our behaviour in other campaigns, because it means that our comrades in anti-capitalist resistance operate in an open communist way inside those organisations. They're not only open about disagreements, but it means that they don't caucus together to decide a line which is then implemented inside the campaigns. That is, we don't go into the campaign meetings already knowing what the correct outcome should be. We don't go in and try and railroad the campaigns towards our line, but we learn from the discussion. So that's a kind of open communist ethos that we enact inside our organisation. And it's an open communist ethos of alliance building that we enact in the different campaigns that we're involved in as members of ACR. There's a kind of very old uh, difference here between popular front ways of doing politics, which Stalinist realists have always loved, and united front ways of doing politics, which revolutionary Marxists have been championing for many years. The popular front way of doing things draws people into an alliance with celebrities and worthy figures from the trade union bureaucracy, liberals of different kinds who can agree with what you're saying, and is intent on stopping debate or disagreement. And anyone who disagrees is called a splitter or of some kind, uh, sabotaging the the unity of the popular front. Whereas a united front is a kind of organisation where the disagreements are open and we argue together, but then we work together in order to realise the objectives 
that we've agreed on. March separately and strike together is the kind of ethos of the United Front. And I think that's part of open communism. Closely tied to that, and it's something that Rowan was talking about before, is this prefigurative aspect, which is the way that we're doing our politics now in an open way is, a, is in a way, anticipating or prefiguring the kind of society that we want to build. And so our prefigurative politics is a politics that is attentive to dominance and control and hierarchy in left organisations and is fighting against that dominance and power and control and fighting for different voices to be heard in a, in a more plural and diverse way. So Open communism is something that we are thinking through in our everyday relationships with our comrades, as well as in the wider goals that we have. I was interested in this notion of standpoint that you introduce in the section in plurality, and I was wondering if that really follows on from your point about the kinds of organisations that we create and the way in which they embody plurality. The idea of standpoint, which obviously comes from the feminist tradition but has roots in Marxism is one that I think Stalinist realism can't really encompass and I think it's a a, a view that while it's evident in the way that Marx treats class I think it's actually in many ways what is meant by a scientific socialism in, in Marx and Engels sense which I think the word socialism can be confusing because it's gained a lot of associations and connotations that it didn't have when Marx and Engels used it. And I think it meant something much more broad then. But I think by scientific that they meant that it came from the perspective of the working class, that it was a working out of history by the working class themselves. And I think since then, we've seen the idea of standpoints broaden to more and more groups of people with particular vantages, particular social positionalities, to use the more sort of technical language of standpoint epistemology within society and and really although Stalinist realism claims to be opposed to identity politics I think as you've pointed out already it has a very fixed notion of identity at its core and a quite false one a construction of the working class that in many ways is quite reactionary and quite limited and even quite insulting to those people who are encompassed within it in that it narrows them down into a kind of character. Whereas this notion of standpoint, which is that your social position shapes your consciousness, that it's an agentive and constantly evolving process, is a notion of identity as well that is a sense of becoming, that in that sense embodies that process-orientated sort of analysis that Marx had. So I was wondering if you'd want to talk a little more on on standpoint and, and what that means to open communism and how that relates to the problems of, of Stalinist realism and even potentially capitalist realism. Yes, standpoint is one of those approaches that is also kind of bugbear of the Stalinist realists. Standpoint is one of those things that goes into the bad category along with intersectionality, yeah? And for a very good reason, because standpoint is a feminist epistemology that connects us, as you say, connects us with some of the deepest traditions in Marxist thought again. And the idea of standpoint emerges 
in feminism to draw attention to the way, I mean, as you say, our social position determines our consciousness. But in particular, there's something else which is important, which is that our social position at the bottom of society, as those who experience the operations of power and who look up at the operations of power and see how it's working, give us a particular kind of insight into those operations of power. It is those who suffer and those who have to rebel and those who have to navigate power in every part of their lives who see something deeper about the nature of power. And so we learn from women and the position of women to understand something about the nature of power in a capitalist society and the nature of patriarchy, because women can see something about patriarchy that we men cannot see because we enjoy our position, even though we try not to, and we try to be critical and we try to find other perspectives. But we enjoy a certain kind of position of power in society by virtue of our being as men. And women see something different. They see their exclusion and their oppression in many, many different ways. And they, from their standpoint, show us and speak about something of the nature of that oppression, which we learn from. And we we learn from that uh, idea in decolonial and anti-colonial movements as well. Those who are struggling against racism can see something about the whiteness of much of our politics, which we're unable to acknowledge ourselves. And it takes us back to Marxist conceptions of standpoint, in which Marx and Engels as well, was very clear that social position determines consciousness, yes, and that's why the ruling ideas are always the ideas of the ruling class. They genuinely experience the world from a position of privilege, and when they tell us that this is the way the world is and the way the world should be, that this is capitalist realism, they really believe it, because that's the world they live in. Whereas The oppressed live in a different world. They live in a world of standpoint that we need to take seriously. So Marxism, in a way, has always been a standpoint theory. It's been from the standpoint of the working class, of those who have to sell their labour and who can see something about the nature of this capitalist society, experience it in their bones every day that have something to say and a different way of organizing uh, against capitalism. So standpoint is, is a really crucial idea here that is part of our tradition. It looks from the bottom of society up at power, whereas Stalinist realism reproduces a capitalist way of looking at society. Stalinist realism is a top-down way of understanding society. It looks down at society from the standpoint of those in the leadership of the bureaucracy or the leadership of the trade unions or the leadership of the political parties, usually white men. Yeah, Ian, I liked the bit on uh, ideology and also, you know, the transitions and the forms that ideology 
takes when it is confronting capitalism. I liked your analysis of the way that obviously social democracy functions as an adaption mechanism. And I think also obviously with your background as a psychoanalyst and writer about psychology, I I really liked the references or the kind of the way that the book in particular talks not just about the politics of things, but also maybe also the way that it actually relates to kind of the human psychological dimensions of the politics as well so yes understanding social democracy is a I think almost like a coping mechanism (laughs) in a sense well I guess Stalinist realism is also a coping mechanism but the way it operates in different ways so so social democracy is a coping mechanism that capitalism is you know terrible and should be overcome or should be ameliorated somehow or like moderated or tamed or something but that will be a, a like a slow gradual process and the way that it sort of is trying to deal with the abuses inflicted on us under capitalism and the hope of overcoming that at some point in the distant future. But, you know, the fact that this might take a very long time and, you know, we shouldn't make any sudden shifts now that might anger the abusive system in any further. And the way that kind of, yeah, social democracy exists within that nexus of kind of politics as a, as a, a, as a reform of capital, as well as the adaption and the compromise with it. I thought I thought that was very interesting. And of course, you know, the kind of bureaucratic Stalinist approach you've already described previously about the, the Stalinist realism way of trying to cope with a world in which it seems that there aren't any countries that would really kind of align with the principles of revolutionary socialism and therefore to change what revolutionary socialism is. So to say, for instance, that China today under the Chinese Communist Party is a form of communism or or socialism. Whereas I think really, if you want to have a Marxist analysis of it, it is a form of very authoritarian capitalism, but of course run by something called the Chinese Communist Party. And so kind of identifying with that and seeing these identifications as kind of coping mechanisms with the way the world is. I thought that was also a very interesting way of understanding the psychology of that kind of political trend as well. I suppose I could have gone into more detail about these fantasy mechanisms, defence mechanisms that you've just referred to. And I don't go into as much detail into fantasy as Mark Fisher does in his book on capitalist realism. And I would really like people to go back to Mark Fisher's book after reading this and to think about the ways in which some of the psychic problems that he describes could be relevant to what I'm describing in this little book. But I suppose what is powering this book is an argument that there's more to Marxism than a kind of uh, rigid economic reductionist analysis, and that what we're striving for as human beings is rooted in our revulsion and resistance to alienation of different kinds in this society. But it's a cultural political struggle as well as an economic class struggle. And so I really disagree with the attempt to ignore the early writings of Karl Marx, which were very humanist and utopian, and to focus only on the later economic writings in Capital, for example. And it's interesting that 
when the early writings of Marx, the utopian, emancipatory, humanist writings, were starting to be rediscovered in the 1920s and 1930s, that they were suppressed inside the Soviet Union because they weren't in keeping with a kind of Stalinist, rigid, reductionist way of understanding Marxism. So there's a task that we have in our reading of Marxism to retrieve that emancipatory humanist dimension of Marxism, utopian dimension that Rowan was talking about earlier. So in a way, I am I am a humanist. I'm a socialist humanist. I think that our humanism is not a function of individual choices, but it's a collective phenomenon and that we become fully human in our interaction and relationship with others. And so we're trying to build a world in which we're not isolated from each other, having to adapt to this terrible economic system. But we're trying to build a world which is a world in which we really become human through our relationships and find different ways of collectively producing forms of happiness and joy and fulfilment and alternatives to alienation. That's what we're aiming for. And I think we need to remember that when we're involved in the nitty gritty of everyday political struggle. My final question, I I want to pick up on this idea of analysis, both from an open communist perspective and from the Stalinist realist perspective. And something I've noticed throughout Stalinist realism in, in its contemporary setting on terms of younger sort of Stalinist people or people who profess to be Stalinist online, or they would never call themselves Stalinist, but essentially, uh, is is that they have that same inherent tendency that you see from the far right to think of political reality in terms of conspiracy theories, in terms of CIA plots, which isn't to deny that the CIA gets up to all kinds of nefarious things, but if you listen to certain Stalinist voices, you would think that they were all powerful. But you'd almost think, why bother opposing them, considering just how hyper-competent and powerful they seem to be. But also just more general machinations, so that everything is a, a sinister conspiracy within a conspiracy theorist. And on the other hand, how do open communists in your schema, and embodying that, notion of standpoint epistemology, how do they, we even, go about analysing the political reality that we're facing today, which is obviously a difficult one, and in part, those difficulties give rise to Stalinist realism in the first place. So I would possibly say that our analysis has to function not only as a strong analysis, but as a, a way to bring back people into a more sincere and open Marxism. In a way, Capitalism does call upon a conspiracy way of thinking. Capitalism relies on the idea. It's a complete fiction, of course. It relies on the idea that the people at the top of society, at the top of the pyramid, the ones with more wealth and more power, have got there because they're especially clever as individuals, or maybe even that they've also worked very hard as well. So all of these multi-billionaires must have worked incredibly hard to accumulate the, the riches that they have. And what Marxism is, is an alternative to that way of thinking about society, because it's an analysis of the conditions that give rise to these kind of conspiracies in the first place. So Marxism isn't an attempt to track down the people behind the scenes who are controlling things, 
whether it's George Soros or Bill Gates putting microchips inside your brain through the vaccinations. <laughs> but rather, Marxism is an analysis of social relationships. And the class struggle itself is a relational struggle. Those who are exploited and labour and produce the wealth are in the position they're in because other people are in the position to exploit them. It's not that there are kind of two pre-existing class blocks that come out of the cupboards and then meet each other so that the ruling class or the capitalists then exploits the working class or the proletariat. It's rather that these two classes are formed in their relationship to each other. And that relationship also, we know, includes other forms of power, patriarchal power, racial power, which enable those, those classes to operate and gives an opportunity for the working class to find the resources and power in its alliance with the many different kinds of workers that there are in the world to find the resources to be able to build an alternative and to overthrow capitalism, to really challenge the forms of power and state apparatus that guarantee uh, the capitalist class and seem to turn that relationship into fixed entities. So our kind of analysis isn't an analysis of real existing entities in the world. I think that's rather a Stalinist way, Stalinist realist way of approaching the world, but rather it's an analysis of relationships that we keep going in our everyday lives, our everyday lives as we go to work, our everyday lives as we listen to the media and try and work out what's happening, our everyday lives as we then participate in demonstrations and actually build something as an alternative in the networks of support that uh, kind of prefigure the kind of world that we want instead. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments or ideas, we would love to hear from you. Write to us at acrradio at anticapitalistresistance.org. That's A-C-R-A-D-I-O at anticapitalistresistance.org. And remember to subscribe on your favourite podcast platforms.